and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Maureen Brady, Associate Professor of Law at the University of Virginia School of Law. We will discuss her article, Property and Projection, which will be published by the Harvard Law Review. So welcome to the podcast, Molly. Thanks so much, Brian. It's delightful to be on. Well, the the pleasure is all mine. Uh, as I was saying uh, earlier, I'm I'm a huge fan of your work, and I really loved the Meets and Bounds paper you published recently, and this new one about projection um, speaks uh, especially dearly to to my heart because before uh, going to law school, I was actually a projectionist at a um, <laughs> at a repertory. Movie, movie theater, um, anthology, film archive. So, um, so projections are near and dear to, to my heart. But, but I was wondering for people who haven't had a chance to look at the paper yet, maybe you could start by just talking about what you mean by projections and sort of what's the nature of the kind of potential property invasion that you're talking about in this paper. Yeah, sure. So um, I became interested in this project as it seemed to me over the last about five years, started seeing more news stories, particularly in big cities, um, about projections occurring without consent on the sides of buildings. And so some of these are um, are government buildings, others are private buildings, and these are light projections. So putting a message or a video um, or a picture, a still image um, on, on the side of a building. And part of what I found interesting um, is that there were first a lot of questions about the legality of these projections. Uh, like many people, when I first saw these, maybe many property professors, I first Googled sort of, is anyone looking at this? A lot of sort of discussion forums where projectors themselves were wondering, can I do this? Uh, and there was uh, mixed evidence on the always reputable uh, online anonymous discussion boards that sometimes <laughs> it seems lawyers participate in. Um, but more strikingly, there were two cases uh, decided uh, where uh, property owners had tried to stop projections on their buildings. In both cases, they involved unions projecting uh, messages, in one case about uh, bodily fluids on a bed, and in another about a restaurant's health code violations. So hopefully you're not eating dinner over there. Um, but they uh, were projecting on these sides of buildings, and after the owners tried to stop them under theories of trespass and nuisance and a couple other forms of claim, uh, the courts basically said they were without relief. Uh, and this struck me as strange because when I teach property, I teach trespass and nuisance, and we talk about trespass as unconsented entries onto land, and we talk about nuisance as non-trespassory harm. And that sure sounds like it should cover the range of actionable harms to property. Uh, sort of if it's not one, it's the other. Um, and so that got me thinking about uh, where this should fall, if it should be something, first of all, that uh, that projectors should be liable for in uh, under a property law framework. And second, where does it go as a trespasser a nuisance? And what does that reveal about property more broadly? Um, so in the paper, I trace kind of the history of light projection related claims in trespass and nuisance, which proves to be pretty awesome and interesting uh, history, beginning with what sounds like the most awesome late night croquet game ever in BC, <laughs> where there's sort of wickets lit up by fire and it's disturbing a pregnant woman next door. Um, they're smoking cigars. Again, it sounds pretty awesome, but not for the neighbor. Um, and from that history, what you can deduce is 
that trespass doesn't cover light because it's intangible and nuisance uh, doesn't cover light because it uh, doesn't tend to cause either economic harm to buildings or uh, sensory harms to the occupants and users uh, of buildings. Uh, And so I sort of talk about that history and then I think about should this be something that's protected by trespass and nuisance? And I kind of trace three different harms and interests associated with uh, projections. So I talk about being intentionally targeted uh, by projections and how some of the cases suggested that if intentional, uh, intentionally projecting at a building ever happened, that should be actionable. And then I talk too about kind of the communicative uses of owners, where those are recognized across law, and then also what I call the presentation interests of owners. Uh, so the rights of owners to communicate with their thing, with the appearance of their thing. Uh, And all this put together, I say, this is something that we should think of as part of the owner's property right, the right to communicate with and through your property. Um, And it's something that I think nuisance can protect. But more broadly, I think it reveals some interesting things about the relationship of privacy and property, uh, and also about kind of the evolution of trespass and nuisance as we think about it compared to other aspects of tort law more broadly. Cool. So maybe just for listeners who haven't had a chance to read the paper itself, you could talk a little bit more specifically about some of the particular projection cases you discuss in the paper. Like what exactly happened and what were the, you know, what what were the reasons for the property owners to be objecting? Yeah, so um, in the two cases in particular, so there have been a lot of examples of projections, and I could talk about some of those that are kind of fun and wild. Um, But in the two cases, I'll just kind of summarize those. So um, there was the one in uh, Las Vegas where, uh, again, members of a projectors affiliated with uh, members of a union projected a restaurant's health code violations onto the side of the restaurant after I believe the restaurant wasn't using union uh, labor in their construction project or maybe in the uh, restaurant itself. Um, And so as uh, the court considered whether to make this a trespass or a nuisance, they said his trespass has always been about tangibles. So about physical things crossing boundaries. The most obvious example of a trespass is a person, right? Walking across a boundary. Uh, But some other things have been considered trespass. Sometimes if you cause water to go uh, onto property, some other uh, sort of physical items, it's the intangibles. So like light and smoke, sometimes particulates like dust uh, and noise that uh, traditionally courts have said cannot form the basis uh, for trespass claims. Courts have suggested that uh, those types of intangibles should be considered under uh, a nuisance framework. And so after uh, the Las Vegas court rejected the uh, the claim of the hotel owner that the light projectors uh, should be liable and trespass again because it was intangible, they said they went to sort of talk about nuisance and said there were no allegations of economic harm. Um, And so without allegations of economic harm, there couldn't be kind of a substantial harm forming the basis of a nuisance-like claim. Um, There was a really interesting concurrence in that case by Justice Tao, uh, who I think, like me, thought there's something wrong with this picture, uh, that there's no liability here. And he sort of suggested that nuisance would be the proper place uh, for considering uh, claims against uh, unconsented to projections uh, and set out kind of an initial framework thinking about maybe the communicative aspect of the of the text or message about maybe the intensity of the projection, whether it was targeting, um, but sort of offered some tentative thoughts. And so I, I view him as kind of inspiring some of my thoughts uh, here, although I think we disagree on some of the particulars. Um, the other case I'll mention just really quickly, because it's uh, interesting, um, is the Philadelphia case involving a union 
uh, two, which projected actually a parody logo on the side of a hotel, again, in some sort of labor dispute. Uh, that case came out pretty much on the same reasoning that it was intangible, so not a trespass, no economic harm, because not a nuisance. But that case interestingly said that the value of speech is so important that when you weigh it against the minimal harm to the owner, that should particularly counsel against finding a nuisance. And so in both these cases, they've said the projections can't really form uh, a basis for liability under either cause of action. So one of the things I thought was really interesting in your paper was the way that you used the famous uh, Brandeis, uh, you know, right to privacy article, Brandeis Warren, uh, right to privacy article as sort of a framework for thinking about how we could kind of look at doctrinal history creatively to accommodate sort of uh, harms that we hadn't previously considered within that framework. And I was wondering if you could talk about like why you thought that that approach was was helpful and how you think it works in this context. Yeah. So uh, first, I'll make fun of myself because there's no more humble thing to do in your introduction than analogize <laughs> yourself to Brandeis and Warren, right? Um, so I was a little horrified by that, even when I did it. Um, but uh, so yeah. So you know, everyone's interested and always has been in sort of the foundational right to privacy article. I'm also interested in the paper um, in. in and William Prosser's work on intentional infliction of emotional distress um, and some of his other papers relating to privacy um, and how I see these tort theorists kind of combing through common and statutory law to look for what is the interest that we're really protecting here. And I think what both, or I should say all three, uh, Brandeis, uh, Warren, and Prosser do is they really nicely um, look across doctrine and find support for the fact that courts are jamming in uncomfortably uh, their sort of reasoning about uh, rights into other frameworks because of the formalism of law. So they're stuck in these old categories. They recognize there should be um, a change or that it would be appropriate to award uh, a property interest or a privacy-like interest uh, to someone, uh, but they're doing it within the strictures of a law that isn't evolving. Um, and in all uh, in all cases, they sort of set, uh, say that tort law should recognize this right explicitly and come to protect it because that's going to bring more coherence uh, to these areas of law privacy, you know, in the case of uh, intentional infliction of emo emotional distress uh, to tort law more broadly. And so I sort of uh, saw myself as being interested in doing the same thing, which was looking across doctrine. So not just at property cases, but at tort cases, uh, and also at statutes, so criminal law uh, statutes, I looked at graffiti statutes, um, and then also First Amendment cases talking about communications from property, and kind of cobbling together things by looking at them not within the formal structures of, oh, this came from the property silo, so it's a property case, or this is really a case about um, about torts, a, a different tort, let's say, defamation or something, instead looking across for commonalities about communicating with and through property, and then thinking about what those interests and harms look like when you look at it differently, not within kind of the formal silos that law, I think being a law professor, um, sometimes forces us into. And then once you're kind of freed from the strictures of your silo and can see that there's recognition for communicative interests of owners across a bunch of different areas of law, it becomes much more easy to say you can and should protect that interest uh, and the law, law should grow to evolve to protect that interest. So so maybe for for listeners who aren't lawyers or law students and maybe haven't had a property class, you could talk with in a little bit more detail about the sort of 
um, dialectic, as it were, that you talk about between trespass and nuisance and sort of how they worked historically and why it is that courts have found it difficult to kind of operationalize those doctrinal principles in the context of of projection and and I think maybe specifically with reference to your use of the concept of appropriation mm-hmm. I think would be helpful for people to understand you know sort of the the general through line of your thinking yeah so I'll mention sort of a bit about kind of the difference between trespass and nuisance and why it might matter a bit. Um, So the most important thing I think about trespass uh, is to know that it's strict liability. Um, So it's sort of a strict binary in the law. You either have trespassed or you haven't. Um, And we really strongly protect the owner's right to exclude uh, with that right. Uh, Nuisance is a bit more uh, symmetrical. We recognize that two owners maybe or two different groups of people have both have rights to use or do the thing they're doing, but we need to kind of reconcile those rights. Uh, So that's led to kind of more ad hoc questions. The test for uh, whether something is a nuisance under uh, the restatement of torts, which is really influential uh, in in developing state law on the subject, uh, suggests that a nuisance is something that's substantial and unreasonable. And so unreasonable means kind of factually courts examine the surrounding circumstances and often will look at the harm to the owner balanced against the utility of uh, the other owner's conduct, uh, usually the more offending owner, the person who's the defendant um, in the suit. And so they do a little bit more kind of ad hoc uh, analysis. Um, So in my paper, I come out that we should be more in the nuisance category when we think about uh, projection for one thing, because of this strict liability feature. Um, So I want to be careful that we don't allow property owners to stand too strongly on their rights. And the example of, I think I talk about in the paper, kind of a a, a set of, you know, stray headlights or something, Uh, or I'm looking for my lost dog and I shine a flashlight on your house. We don't want people to be liable for those kinds of things. Uh, But I think we do want them to be liable for Uh, transformative communicative uses of your property. Um, And the analogy to appropriation, I mean, appropriation is kind of an interesting term. Um, It comes out of property. It was an it was, I think, in more common use uh, a while back as sort of, you know, an unconsented taking of your property, often personal uh, property. Now appropriation, we often think of uh, as being more about identity. So it's used a lot in uh, right of publicity cases, for example, that you've appropriated my identity to sell your product or something like that. Um, and I really thought appropriation was the right word for thinking about what happens when someone communicates on your property um, without your consent. That it's both the loss of control, so like a taking or an unconsented use of something that belongs to you, but it's also appropriation of identity because uh, property and buildings are associated with their owners. Um, And so just like the use of your name or likeness to sell something might be personally offensive to you or it harms a dignitary interest, uh, the unconsented use of your building, I think, causes similar types of harms. It has the same type of feeling. Uh, So I think that nuisance allows us to kind of flex flexibly examine whether an appropriation uh, has occurred. And so I kind of like it within the uh, nuisance framework for that reason. Yeah, yeah I, I really like that that way of thinking about the the problem, but I'll also say that like, you know, as someone with an art background, you know, when I hear appropriation, I don't necessarily immediately think privacy so much as I think about like appropriation art Mm -hmm. and the kind of ways that ownership and attribution are 
problematized, I guess, for expressive purposes in the art world. And you talk about kind of First Amendment tensions in in your paper as well. I wonder if you could reflect on on some of those for a moment in the context of both the cases that you describe in the paper and also other potential uh, projection situations, like say, for example, rather than it being a union sort of objecting to a property owner's failure to or refusal to compromise, what if it were like an artist or a political group making a uh, uh, a point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So first, I mean, I love the uh, analogy to kind of uh, the the art world, because I do think one of the things that's kind of fun to think about is, is property, should we think of it as a form of self-authorship? Um, I think often property theorists think that's sort of inherent, and, or should we think of it as not being as significant as your own sort of self-expression through art? Um, this is something I think has been fun for me to reflect on. I don't know that I have a great sort of answer to that question yet. I mean, I think it's been fun to think about how people construct their identities and how they engage in self-authorship through the ways that they express themselves aesthetically on property and through their buildings. Um, Obviously, there are limits on that. We can talk more about that. But um, I think that's a really cool analogy to think about. Um, With the First Amendment piece, you know, the First Amendment, as I mentioned, has already been invoked by one court as sort of a utility, a good thing uh, about projection that should be balanced against the negligible economic harm to uh, the property owner. Um, And I find that sort of problematic as a matter of thinking in tort law, just because that sort of sets uh, owners uh, up on different scales. So if your harm is only cognizable when it's economic, but the benefits of the other owner's use will consider anything and everything, that sort of seems stacked uh, against a plaintiff owner trying to stop the analysis. That said, I do think there may be a space um, for the First Amendment uh, as a kind of defense to uh, potential tort action. Um, This is sort of a thorny area because there's often questions about whether, you know, state's resolution of a nuisance action should really be considered the type of state action uh, that triggers First Amendment scrutiny. But assuming that that it actually is state action for a court to decide a nuisance case uh, in favor of uh, one party as against the speech uh, of another. There are a few things to consider. Um, So I do think that uh, there may be sort of categories of speech, like you mentioned, that might be significant. So we might think, I think we often think of commercial speech as being less worthy of protection. So maybe advertising projections, of which there are tons and tons of emerging guerrilla advertising companies doing these types of like projections. Those might be especially Mm -hmm. in peril under my framework, vis-a-vis the other types of projections uh, that you mentioned. I also think there's interesting underlying state law considerations. Um, So we know that some states, examples often are uh, California and New Jersey sometimes have a, a less strong property right or balance the property right against sort of public uh, public interests in a way that is unique to state law. Uh, and that's been significant in some of the cases about whether the First Amendment should entitle people actual physical access to other people's properties. Um, so those underlying state law considerations about how strong the property right literally is. Um, the really strong analogy here
here is two uh, the, the cases about malls. Um, so these are mm. the sort of free speech easements, whether uh, pamphleteers often or protesters needed to be uh, admitted to private mall spaces. Probably the most famous case here is this case called Prune Yard uh, versus Robbins, where uh, pamphleteers were seeking access to a private mall. Uh, and because underlying California laws were permitted that uh, access, the Supreme Court uh, not only upheld the access, but also said it wasn't a taking for uh, them to have to suffer that kind of uh, physical uh, invasion. So underlying state law considerations might be really important in thinking about third-party access to private property. That said, and I think this relates to your question uh, about sort of self-authorship, I do think there's considerations on the other side here. Uh, So while we might say there should be some entitlement or some flexibility for maybe some kind of entitlements, maybe dependent on underlying state law, um, the other side's interests, in this case, the property owner's interests, look uh, a bit like what we think of as compelled speech interests or interests against compelled speech. That is, there's a risk of misattribution. If you are forced Mm. to have my message uh, on your building, Uh, there's a risk of unwanted association. So I'm sure each of us can think of something that we would find really objectionable um, on our properties, whether it's something we politically disagree with or would just find offensive or upsetting or personally um, sad. And so I think that... um, that the fact that there's interests on both sides here mean that there is a strong interest in sort of uh, speech and political speech, but there's also an interest in preventing compulsion that relates to just the autonomy interests that people have in both their property ownership and in their speech interests. Yeah, no, that that makes a lot of sense to me. And, 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 and I got to say, I mean, there was something about the perspective of your paper, and I don't know if this is just kind of proximity, but, you know, it reminded me of James Stern's paper that I read and, and talked to him about last week where he sort of questioned the idea of non-rivalry in the context of intellectual property goods or, or information goods. And, and it struck me that there was sort of this background concern in your paper around sort of a sense in which there's an assumption that these projection uses are effectively non-rival uses because they don't cause economic harm and yet they do cause like hedonic harms in the sense that the the property owners don't like it and you know the, should we care about that kind of harm right i think that's exactly right and you know i think um James's paper, if I remember correctly, also relates to sort of a privacy interest in being able to refuse to allow your property to be used. Um, And I do think that late actually raises really interesting problems of rivalrousness um, uh, in in both the the novel sense um, and in the old traditional sense, because even though it's true that you can add more light to a surface, in this case, that will actually obstruct the message. And there's a really cool example. It doesn't come from the US. It comes from Australia where uh, protesters were upset that uh, the Sydney Opera House uh, had basically been sold as a billboard, uh, that they were going to permit advertising on that iconic opera house. And so they uh, went out with flashlights and in some case, industrial projectors, you know, thousands of people, I think, organized a kind of grassroots effort. And they were able really to blot out um, some of the ad, particularly where it used white light. Um, and so, you know, adding more light really, it really restricts potentially the owner's ability to communicate from their own property if that's something they want to do. And this is something we know that some owners do want to do. I mean, I think uh, mm. as an art person, you may know that there's amazing projection mapping happening 
with consent, uh, where there's amazing light shows and other displays being put on properties uh, sort of around the country, certainly, and around the globe. And so um, I think that there are owners who are excited about this medium and, you know, will be excited to participate in it. And I'm more worried about the ones who don't want to participate in it um, and and who would object to what would be put on uh, on their buildings. Yeah. And, and, you know, one of the things that that struck me as well in relation to the points you're making about sort of the tension between property ownership and the first amendment in relation to these projections was like almost like a kind of, I think it was Cohen v. California, you know, like sort of sometimes the context and the circumstances are essential to the meaning of the speech. And I, I wonder if there are circumstances where like, property rights to object to projections might be limited or potentially cabined by the need of the speaker to make the projection speech in a particular context and in a particular way. And like how, how, how to sort of reconcile those two values. Yeah. So, I mean, this is, I think, uh, something that's sort of lurking is if the speech has a particular nexus to the building or its occupant, then maybe this is an especially strong case for an entitlement to speak. We'll say that sort of the free speech easement cases have not treated this as super significant, um, that you don't always get to speak from the best spot if it's the facade, particularly because, um, you know, the, the, the context of being in the proximity of the building may be close to as good, um, or at least a reasonable alternative uh, to, being on the building itself. And because being on the building, I think, does raise the kind of fun, uh, if you're more of a guerrilla projection enthusiast, of uh, of causing unwanted association for the owner. Um, I do think that that maybe the owner's rights uh, are, are stronger uh, there, at least as against sort of the reasonable alternatives that are available. Although I do think, you know, this is why that they're using facades, um, is because it does kind of carry this extra meaning or shock value. I will say that, uh, again, not just the First Amendment, but other areas of law ha, uh, have been really hostile to the idea that you're entitled to specific spaces. Um, so, you know, alternatives in the First Amendment context. But um, I'm by nature a taking scholar. Um, and one of my favorite cases to teach is this case, uh, Loretto, um, which is about mm. uh, the entitlement, uh, essentially a regulation that entitled a third party to install a cable, a really tiny cable uh, down the front of a building. Um, and it's sort of, you know, this case that uh, establishes that a de minimis physical invasion of your property uh, can constitute a taking, even if it's a little tiny cable running down the front. Uh, That decision has been criticized, certainly. But one of the interesting things to think about in that case is that they have to deal with a a problem, which is that there's this regulation requiring the cable, but there's also regulations requiring property owners to have all sorts of other things like smoke detectors and mailboxes. Um, And so there was this issue, how do we distinguish between these two things? Regulations require property owners to do things. And again, in that kind of self-authorship vein, uh, the court treats as significant Mm. the fact that when you're required to have a mailbox or a smoke detector, you can kind of choose, you have some control control over how to fulfill that obligation. Whereas if you have to run the cable down a particular piece of the building, you've lost your control over that space, however minimal. Um, and so I think, again, the recognition that um, that the owner should have some entitlement to control what happens um, within the boundaries of the property uh, is not just in, in First Amendment law, but is also running throughout lots of other areas of property law. In, indeed. I mean, it really seems to me like it highlights the way in which uh, autonomy 
And the autonomy of ownership is so central to the way we think about property, its justification, and and how we should think about interpreting property doctrine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that you know we all. We- owner's autonomy is limited in all sorts of important and good ways, right? So there's lots of regulation that limits owners. There's lots of, um, you know, judicial decisions in the nuisance context, for example, that limit your autonomy to do exactly whatever, uh, whatever you want with the thing. Um, But this is new and interesting because it actually entitles a private person to do something with your property in ways that the law isn't currently addressing, and that's communicating from it. Um, and so, you know, when we think about legislation, you know, maybe there's capacity for your voice to be used and sort of changing the rules or for electing uh, a government that restricts you in the ways you find acceptable and you want others to be restricted. With judges, it's mediated at least through process. The problem, I think, here is that this is a private groups sort of being able to do this privately outside the system without kind of uh, room for fine-grained considerations of these these competing interests. And so I think that's something else that's really attracted me to this project. Uh, so, so Molly, I mean, your your paper is specifically about about projections in the context of property, but it struck me that in a in a broader way, it's really about sort of how we think about the nature of property ownership and sort of what the uh, appropriate and legitimate rights of property owners are. And I was wondering if you could reflect for a moment on sort of what lessons, if any, you think the paper might have for kind of thinking about property law more generally. Yeah, one of the things I'm really fascinated with, I think, and this is starting to emerge across my work, um, is kind of an interest in this, we've been talking about it as self-authorship or privacy, but an interest in how property protects those interests and whether the law protects them enough as they're expected or as they're expressed through real and personal property ownership. I've written elsewhere about the Fourth Amendment, which is another context in which the ascendance of privacy hasn't always been matched by uh, ongoing protection for property. And I don't think it's caused decreased protection for property, but has maybe caused interesting um, interesting consequences. I've written specifically about personal property, where the rise of privacy has actually caused somewhat less uh, protection for things like coats on the chair in Starbucks, where now you have no privacy expectation, potentially, uh, but you may still have uh, property expectations. And so this interface between privacy and property, um, and sort of whether property law should more aggressively recognize and protect the privacy and dignitary interests uh, involved in ownership, that's definitely one thing that I think my work is driving toward. I think the other thing that I'm really interested in, um, as we think about the nature of property ownership, is the right to use. So we think of the big three property rights as kind of the right to exclude, which gets a lot of play, uh, the right to transfer, uh, which we can also imagine is the right to you know pass your property through your will or something like that. Um, that also gets a good amount of play and that sort of everyone who's been through first year property knows that property hates restraints on alienation and uh, all <laughs> that sort of black letter stuff. Uh, but the right to use, I think, is kind of under theorized because it's hard. It involves a lot of this symmetrical balancing of competing rights. Um, and so it's kind of an intractable. I mean, everyone uh, everyone who teaches torts or property knows that nuisance is often called a legal garbage can. Um, and I'm really interested in kind of thinking more systematically about the right to use both uh, in a private law context, so sort of nuisance, um, owner against owner, but also in how the state can restrict uh, your right to use, which I think is uh, part of my takings work. Um, and I'm interested too in kind of how the right to use has been um, used nefariously uh, kind of throughout uh, throughout property history. I mean, I've been interested really recently 
um, in uh, some of Carol Rose and Rick Brooks's work on racially restrictive covenants um, and how mm. there was an interesting response to racially restrictive covenants, which was uh, the creation of the of corporations uh, that were owned by African-Americans. Uh, and so there was this problem. So how do we treat a corporation that owns property? Do we assign it a race? What happens? Um, and courts got around the problem by essentially looking at the feeble nature of the right to use. So they said, we're not going to assign a race to the corporation, but we're going to really restrict your ability to use it. So you may be able to own it as a corporation, um, but we're not going to allow uh, African-Americans to use the property. And so I think we really need to think about the limitations on the right to use and develop kind of better Theories, uh, of that right and how we should be reconciling it uh, with both the power of the state and as against other private owners. Great. Well, Molly, thanks so much for talking to me today. I really enjoyed your paper and I hope listeners will check it out. Thank you so much. This has been a lot of fun. Since I became governor, we've tripled aid to cities and towns, and that aid has helped keep property taxes from soaring right out of sight. Bad as they are now, they'd be much worse without us. In Boston, for instance, which was able to hold the line, the rate would have increased by $11 this year alone. In Worcester, $5. In New Bedford, $6. If it weren't for this new state aid, $5. 